Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, the festive edition. I'm Jenny, an outrageous outlaw. And I'm Annie, and my only crime is how much I love archives. You better watch out. If they catch you for that, they're going to put you away for a long time. No, Jenny, it's me who puts the archives away for a long time. (laughs) That's how archives work. (laughs) This is a holiday bonus episode to thank all of you wonderful listeners who have rated and reviewed us. We've had a terrific response, and so we thought we'd do a little bit of celebratory research. Yay! This truly is an episode of me and Jenny just taking the joy of going down surreal tangents. (laughs) It feels like an old school Stories of Scotland episode where we just sort of while away into the weirdness of the past. So today we are looking at Yuletide Crime and Punishment in Early Modern Scotland. (laughs) It might seem like a bit of an odd festive bonus, but strangely, looking at these archives of crimes tells us so much about the culture and superstitions of communities across Scotland. And to find out why this is, we're going back to Reformation Scotland. For anyone who, like me, needs constant reminding of when and what the Reformation was all about, here's my cheat plate. Your cheat plate? Yes, this is the Scottish Reformation as a Yuletide feast. The Reformation started slow roasting in the mid-16th century. Across Europe, unrest was boiling over on a big issue. The classic conundrum of whether you want to stick with the traditional hog, which in this case is Catholicism, or go for the hot new thing on the block, Turkey, which is Protestantism. In Scotland, the government and monarchy finally make up their mind and set laws which control the religious beliefs and practices of the entire nation. Essentially, they say we're going to decide the meat that everyone is getting on their plate. This isn't a buffet. This isn't a buffet. (laughs) (laughs) And so, in 1560, the overboiled Brussels sprouts of Parliament decide that they do indeed want to move from hog to Turkey. They set down some acts to make Scotland a Protestant country, and this is the Reformation. Now the roast potato peasantry, the everyday folks, that's us Annie, many still keep some of the older celebratory customs that they have followed all their lives. However, practicing these beliefs now becomes a punishable crime. If the potatoes are caught in a compromising situation, then these crimes go to the steamed carrots of the courts, the Kirk Sessions. And the carrot courts and their detailed note-taking is how we learn about the early modern Yuletide crimes. Thanks, Jenny. (laughs) What do you think? You coming back for seconds? I hope you are never allowed in a school. Or a restaurant. (laughs) So yes, just as you kind of said, the Scottish Reformation is the people in power switching Scotland from a Catholic to a Protestant country from a legal perspective. This means anyone practising Catholic rites can be prosecuted. But there's a key problem with comparing this to a Yule feast. Oh, there's no gravy, it's super dry. 
no. Um, so one of the customs that was being cancelled because of the Reformation was the Yule Feast. I mean, technically, they have made it very dry. They've taken all the fun out of a Christmas dinner. But no, Jenny, there's no Christmas dinner at all because it's been cancelled. Oh, can't I? (laughs) (laughs) Try and hold me back from that turkey. So this is why you are an outlaw, Jenny. Now, in this episode, we're going to be calling the Festival of Christmas Yule. And that's simply because that's what people called Christmas back then. Though Yule is its own distinct festival that we understand as being something quite separate from Christmas nowadays, because Yule has pagan origins and reaches far back to polytheistic roots across Europe, in early modern Scotland, people were celebrating Yule for the same reasons that Christians celebrate Christmas nowadays. And a lot of the traditions that people had came from the polytheistic version of Yule, the feasting, the Yule log, the singing, and the wreaths. But what we see with people's actions is that they're roughly staying the same, but what changes is the meaning behind the actions. So for example, whereas before they might have been singing songs to celebrate one of their many polytheistic pagan gods, now they're singing carols that celebrate their Christianity at the time. In some ways, by banning Yule celebrations, The Presbyterian power is trying to separate people from a couple of layers of previous belief. The language used in the Acts is the prevention and purging of superstitious days, which feels like they want to ban the echoes of pagan festivity. However, I think there's also an element of trying to shift people away from Catholic methods of celebrating their religion. So you're trying to not just break one link in the chain of these people's beliefs, but two. And by associating Catholic ways of celebrating Yule with pagan beliefs, they're trying to portray Catholic traditions as heathen. But it kind of backfires and ends up creating a bit of a Barbara Streisand effect. Because when Yule celebrations were banned, it resulted in people getting prosecuted for continuing to observe Yule. And this means that 400 years later, we get a really detailed insight into the Yule practices of everyday people. People who are often ignored by other historic documents. But why was the church so against Christmas? Well, early modern Scotland was under constant threat from natural tragedies, plagues or famines. And they interpreted this to be that their god was punishing them for their frolics and follies and fun. And so in order to try and make the public more devoted, pious and pure, they wanted their congregations to focus only on working hard and shunning old rituals. And it wasn't only Yule that they banned, but also Easter, Midsummer, All Saints Days, and any kind of celebratory feasting, such as at a wedding. Basically, any opportunity to light a bonfire and have some fun with the fairies was banned. And this absolutely tore Scotland apart, because as we all know, fairies love a good hog roast on the fire. I would also just like to point out before we carry on that, as we learned in last episode, the fairies would most likely have also been naked while at this feast. (laughs) (laughs) 
Just a quick thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Scotland Shop. Scotland Shop make beautiful tartan clothing with a story behind every product. And your tartan garments can be custom made to fit your body shape. While based in the borders, their tartans are available worldwide. Follow the link in the episode description and see their wide range of tailored tartan clothing and fabrics. There are over 500 clan tartans to choose from. 500! And you can make a virtual appointment for some personal service from the comfort of your own sofa. Your own sofa! Jenny, I think you'd look great in one of their tailored suits. I agree, Annie. I'll head over to Scotland Shop via the link in the episode description after the show. Let's jump in and take a look at some interesting Yuletide crimes. We're going back to Elgin in Murray on December 30th, 1598. The Kirk is going out of its way to demand that people don't guise or observe any of the superstitious days, such as Yule. This is a Kirk session report. Now, the Kirk sessions are a low court of the Presbyterian Church, and it's from their records that we'll be hearing about some of the people accused of Christmas crimes. For anyone who isn't familiar with the Scots word guising, it means dressing up in a costume and showing it off publicly, usually by knocking on some doors and displaying to your friends behind the door how wonderfully dressed you are. There's another Scots word that might trip us up in this episode, which is damasket. I think this word likely means to be masked or costumed in a dramatic way. I checked the pre-1700 Scots dictionary online and damasket has a little question mark next to it, so it seems that other people have had issues interpreting it too. John Samson and James Cruick are accused of dancing and guising at night in several houses. They admitted they danced, but not disguised, nor damasket. George Kay is also accused of dancing and guising on Monday last, and he confessed he had his sister's coat upon his body. And those about him had clothes damasket and their faces blackened, and they had a lad playing the bones and bells with them. Archie Hay had a face mask about his loins and a woman's handkerchief about his face. And George Kay also confessed to playing football under the night yesterday. Sentenced thus, Samson and Crook are ordered to stand on Sunday in their own seat and make repentance. Kay and Hay are ordered to make repentance for two Sundays, barefoot and barelegged, but not bare buttocks. Jenny, <laughs> uh, the line about bare bottoms was not in the original text. Could have been. <laughs> it feels like there's a lot to unpack here. Um, we have men who are cross-dressing with blackened faces and bones and bells. And I feel we just need to tick these issues off one at a time. The blackened face would likely be done with coal dust, 
to prevent identification of the men, which clearly did not work for them. However, this is a tactic that is used by other cross-dressing rebellions against authorities, such as in the Welsh Rebecca riots. I think any European blackface of this time period has roots in racism, because of all the connotations that early modern Europeans loaded onto skin colour. I was thinking about this and though guising is still very popular in Scotland at Halloween, I've never seen anyone doing any kind of blackface. So though these traditions still exist, the blackface is certainly not a welcome part of it. However, in this record, I find the Yuletide cross-dressing an absolutely fascinating theme. And again, it feels we've got a lot to unravel here. Yes, we do. People guising as a different gender was a very common practice around Yule time in Scotland, which was new to me because prior to this, I thought guising was purely sort of around Halloween. And so to see it throughout different celebrations is really interesting. And what would happen is groups of revelers would dance through the streets in the dresses and hats of women or the trousers, jackets and hats of men often donning their brother's or sister's clothes. It was a jolly good time all round, a time when societal expectations were ripe for the bending and a bit of fun was had. For example, in Aberdeen in January of 1577, four women were caught as dancers in men's clothing under silence of night, in hoose and throughout town. So they were being a gender non-conforming travelling dance troupe that brought entertainment straight to your door. What is not to love? I would literally be there with bells on, Jenny, and you could bring the bones. Ah, well we'll get to the bones in a minute, but before then, we're going to get to the Kirk. Because the Kirk was far less impressed with the women dancing down the streets than you are, Annie. They were threatened with losing all the benefits of the Kirk when they were caught. And we commonly see fines or orders to confess and repent publicly in church being handed out to these unlucky folk. Such as with Kay and Hay in the trial that we read above. It is so ridiculous because at the same time as prosecuting people for celebrating Yule on the basis of it being a superstitious day, the Kirk are also prosecuting witches. When I was looking at the original documents, one page, it's a woman accused of enchantment. The next, someone is cross-dressing for Christmas. (laughs) Um, And to me, it feels like by far the Kirk are fanning the fire of superstition by doing these prosecutions far more than the burning of a Yule log ever could. Hmm. There's cases across Scotland about people being fined in the Kirk sessions for guising at Yule time. Another one I find particularly interesting is in the winter of 1629, also in Elgin. Again, the Kirk explicitly tells people, with a bell ringer on the street, that Hear ye, hear ye, there must be no guising, nor any other superstitious rites, to be used about Yule time under the pain contained in the acts. Back about your days now. Ding ding. Do you feel that your town crying is going to stop anyone, Jenny? 
No, I think they'll probably just arrest me and charge me for superstitious activity. Well, you shouldn't have been dressed as a man when you were town crying, Jenny. It's the trousers. You can never get past the trousers. <laughs> well, it certainly didn't stop William Sutherland. Merchant confessed himself to have been guising in women's clothing about the Yule time. He is ordered to pay 40 shillings. Alexander Innes, who dyes cloth, also confessed to guising, but with a false beard on at Yule time. Therefore, he is ordered to pay 20 shillings. So people are getting fined double the amount for cross-dressing whilst guising than they would be for simply guising with a false beard. I think this shows us that there was an extra level of fear for gender nonconformity. Either way, you're punished for celebrating Yule, but it will be far more severe of cross-dressing. Yes, they really were the fun police. I think perhaps the cross-dressing challenged the Kirk because it shows a level of freedom and free-thinking that really disrupted their idea of a perfectly ordered society. Well, the article that you gave me by Margot Todd suggested that the Kirk were also threatened by the thought that cross-dressing, masks and dancing could all lead to promiscuity. And again, it's possible that the cross-dressing is harking back to old superstitions that you want to conceal your true identity at these key feast days because that's when you're more likely to encounter someone from the supernatural realm, a ghost or a fairy who might try to steal you away or do something bad with your soul. And fairies love a good gender non-conforming dance party, so there's no way they're going to steal one of those people. Yes, the fairies would not want to stop this, but the Kirk sessions most definitely did. <laughs> so simply observing Yule at all is going to get you punished. And at times, this was quite extreme. People weren't even allowed to have a day off work on December 25th, to the point that people who were not seen actively working on Yule were suspected of observing this superstitious day. They called this being idle, and people were so afraid of being accused of being idle that there's some kind of joke accounts of workers doing their ordinary work outside of the house so that they could be witnessed going about their working day and not doing anything yuletide. <laughs> yeah, so on Christmas, I'm going to take my desk and computer out to my front garden, the couple extension cords, just so people know how hardworking I am. That's it, exactly. It's not just that you're working, you're putting on a performance of working so that you don't get hit with having to do repentance in church or with a big fine. You want to hold on to your shillings, Jenny. At points, though, it does look like geysers were simply trolling the church. There's a case of young people being caught in masks, doing sword dances in the churchyard to celebrate Yule, which feels like a very silly place to be doing a Yuletide celebration. But hey... It's ye olde equivalent of teenagers drinking in the park mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on Christmas Day with swords. <laughs> <laughs> in Glasgow, on the 26th of December, 1583, there's a case of five people who were ordered to repent because they had made a delicious Yule bread. Oh, how crummy. They just needed to rise above it. <laughs> Tomorrow will be butter. Just doing their best. 
Live, loaf, repent. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, my Yuletide gift to you is a strange tangent I found myself on when I was researching the first extract that we read. If you remember, it mentioned a young lad playing an unusual instrument. Now, the men were dancing around the streets, but they weren't dancing to no music. They had ye olde version of a boombox with them. A young fellow playing the bones and bells. Now, the bells are fairly self-explanatory here, jingle, jingle, and all that. But the bones are the real music makers. Bones are an ancient instrument, and their use stretches back through time to distant civilizations and scattered locations across the world. The Egyptians, Romans, and Greeks all played the bones, but they were also utilized in Mesopotamia and throughout the Chinese dynasties. They were also very common in Celtic culture. The instrument consists of two concave carved bones, or more modernly pieces of wood, placed on either side of the middle finger. While one bone is held tight against the palm, the other is held loosely and able to move about and hit its partner. The bones are played in a similar fashion to the spoons, and any self-respecting spoon player will tell you that they are not played with the fingers, but with the movement of the wrist and the elbow. And this creates a whole lot of click-clacking fun. During my research, I found a few old folk songs which tell of Bones players, with some still well known to this day. Annie, do you recognise this one? This old man, he played one, he played knick-knack on my thumb with a knick-knack paddywhack. Give the dog a bone, this old man came rolling home. I recognise this one, and now that you say it, it feels a bit creepy. Maybe this is something from nursery? Yes, I wasn't going for creepy vibes, I was going for wholesome vibes, but I I can see where the blur happens. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it's just because as an adult I find out all my old nursery rhymes contain death or plague and murders and very sorrowful stories and now I'm just suspicious of all of them. To be fair, this one is literally about bones as well. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> And while technically it's recorded as being an English folk tune traditionally, it has long since crossed the border to Scotland, and you're right, it's commonly sung as a nursery rhyme. And what do you know? The knick-knack is the clacking sound that the bones make when played. So while the bones are a little less visible than they were in the past, they're still present in everyday culture. And you still get bone players nowadays, don't you? Oh yeah, it's still fairly widespread, but I think most people, if you ask them what the bones were, wouldn't be able to tell you straight away. And I feel the spoons maybe superseded them, didn't they? Yeah, that was a hot new thing on the block then. The, the government actually stepped in and created laws that said if you're still playing the bones, we're going to fine you 40 shillings, especially if you've got a wig on when you're doing it. So back to that little rhyme you gave me, Jenny, <laughs> just out of curiosity, can you tell me what a paddywhack is? Oh, yeah, well, this also is a bit more grisly, which also harks back to your grim nursery rhymes that we have. But a paddywhack is a part of an animal that's really tough, so it's not really great for us humans to eat, and it's often thrown to the dogs to chew on. So the paddywhack is the bone that's given to the dog. Knick-knack, paddywhack, give the dog a bone. 
I have never heard of a paddywhack until now. <laughs> Tangents. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that the old man rolling home in this nursery rhyme has just had one too many festive drams and it's not some other kind of dreadful meaning behind it. Yes, let's just hope he was very merry after watching these men dance around to the lively layered music created by the young man and his bones and bells. It would have been quite the night out. I might take up bone playing. My girlfriend might dump me, but clickety clackety. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the folks who were caught for the crime that brought us to this nursery rhyme, they certainly had a good old time. But they were in for a hefty fine. <laughs> and asked next year whether they'd do it again. They yelled, of course, you can call me hen. But until then, just call me William, please. Annie, while all these crimes have been truly heinous, do you know what the greatest Christmas crime of them all was? Was it the lumps in your gravy, Jenny? No, Annie, some people just prefer it lumpy. It was, in fact, goose. Goose? Geese? Goose! For in the eyes of Minister Murdoch Mackenzie, there was nothing that said, Here, devil, come and take my soul! quite like a perfectly plucked and plump yuletide goose. He was famous in the Elgin area for bursting into people's kitchens on yuletide day and scouring it for the sights or smells of a perfectly prepared goose. Wait, what? (laughs) What's wrong with eating a lovely juicy goosey on Christmas? What's wrong? What's wrong, Annie? So evil was this act that Minister Mackenzie told those who he found in possession of a superstitious goose on Yuletide that the feathers of that very goose would rise up in judgment against them one day. Not the possessed goose of Christmas. Now, Annie, come on. While there is nothing inherently evil about geese, I think the minister viewed the goose as superstitious because preparing and eating a goose would signify a special occasion. And to be having a goose on Christmas Day would most certainly seem like the people were celebrating something. How suspicious. And so, it was a sign that these folk had not heeded the word of the church and were thus to be cursed with the judgment of the floating feathers of a well-cooked goose. (laughs) I'm just imagining this. In my head, it's the aftermath of an old school pillow fight and you've got all of these feathers floating in the air but then they form the shape of a living goose and they they float down on you and they go honk and then just judge your Christmas dinner. They peck at your roast potatoes, they tell you they're not crispy enough. They judge the overcookedness of your Brussels sprouts. <laughs> They condemn the lumps of your gravy, Jenny. They say, honk, no one wants texture in their gravy, Jenny. (laughs) 
Honk, honk. I've seen a better dressed woman dancing down the street at Yuletide with all of his friends. Honk. (laughs) Hang on a minute there, Jenny. (laughs) Did your accent just acknowledge the migratory nature of geese? We've got a North American goose coming over here to judge us for Christmas. I don't know what happened. I channeled a possessed goose and it came out as if it was coming from Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a different theory as to why your goosebuster minister was quite so interested in invading people's homes at Yule. He was lonely? No, he was hungry. Mm. Some of the things about this minister that were sad was that he was the kind of guy who was known for preaching against the deceitfulness and sin of riches, whilst at the same time pulling the church money over the table towards him. (gasps) Honk, honk! So, what are the chances that he confiscated this beautifully cooked, glazed and perfectly dripping goose that he found and then carried it right back to his hoose, where he had his own little goose party on the loose. Who are you going to call, Annie? Goosebusters! (laughs) (laughs) So the final acts banning Yuletide celebrations were repealed in 1712. So though we can no longer be publicly shamed, fined, or have our houses raided for hidden superstitious geese, the early modern Yule ban for Scotland had lasting impact. For example, when my grandfather was young, Christmas wasn't even a public holiday in Scotland. Yeah, it was really common for people to be working on Christmas Day. And so because of this, Hogmanay or New Year's Eve kind of overtook Christmas as the big winter holiday. And to some degree, it's still like this. I feel like the modern Scottish Christmas is still very similar to every other Christmas in the Western world. However, Hogmanay still manages to capture some of the magic and Yule traditions that fell through the cracks. Like I said, I only found out when researching this episode that guising was really popular on Hogmanay as well as Halloween. Which makes sense, because traditions such as first footing, which is where you go and visit the houses of friends and family, is still very popular. And I remember as a child, we would do this. We would leave our house and then my father would pick up some coal and he would be the first to walk over our own door into our house with the coal. And that was our... New Year's tradition. See, you're meant to first foot with other people, Jenny. (laughs) I don't know if any of my parents' friends wanted four kids under 10 years old covered in coal in their house at midnight. (laughs) Well, I found a nice wee article from 1932 that discusses Hogmanay tradition. Would you like to read it, Jenny? Here we go. True, the observation of Christmas is much more marked in Scotland now than it was even a few years ago. But that has, to only a very small extent, interfered with the time-honoured celebration of the New Year Feast. Many of the old-fashioned customs, however, have fallen almost into abeyance. 
that they are practically unknown to the younger generation, at least in the towns. Some of them have come into the category of those old ceremonials which are being vigorously revived. To be fully appreciated, Hogmanay should be spent in a country village, for there, in old world surroundings, many of the old customs and superstitions still linger. Under the mellow glow of a paraffin lamp, rosy-cheeked apples and juicy oranges are laid on the kitchen table in readiness for the tiny visitors who will, as soon as darkness falls, come and demand their hogmanay. And their demand is not a politely worded request. Gee as our hogmanay, is the cryptic but usual phrase. Though some children will partly earn their fruit by repeating the old rhyme. Get up, good wife, and shake your haunted goose feathers. Then I think that we are beggars. We're only bairns, come to play. Get up and gee us our hogmanay. And surely the young men of the village were letting us down if Happy New Year was not chalked on every house door. They had a keen sense of humour. Sometimes it was crude, perhaps. But after all, there is only one Hogmanay in every year. I do love that this is just a variation of the guising that we saw punished in early modern Scotland. It feels like, at essence, it's the same tradition of celebrating and seeing people and having fun and, to some degrees, misbehaving. If there is one night of the year you can be a little bit wild, why not let it be Hogmanay? Because the next day is a new year, and so you've got a fresh slate. And what better way could you have of celebrating Hogmanay than giving us a five-star rating and review? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and good news if you listen on Spotify, because you can now rate podcasts there. So please do give us a shining five stars. Reviews and ratings really help us as a small, independent podcast in the charts. And that allows more and more people to find us and enjoy these stories. So a massive thank you to everyone who has rated us and reviewed us. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode. We'd also really like to thank all of our patrons. Those who support us on Patreon get access to lots more stories about Scotland while also helping support Annie and I as we toil. And we are so thankful. So a warm welcome to our newest patrons, Holly, Kalina and Cynthia. Thank you so, so much, you wonderful people. I like to imagine you three guising at Hogmanay. One of you has the bones and bells and the other two are confiscating a suspicious goose. Or a meat alternative goose if you happen to be vegetarian or vegan. (laughs) 2021 has been a really special year for Annie and I. Thank you all so much for joining us on our journey through the weird and wonderful history, nature and mythology of Scotland. We have so many exciting plans for 2022, but until then, Slanjava. Slanjava. Jenny, how are you going to cook this Yuletide feast? You can barely make cheese on toast. Okay, to be fair, it's really good cheese on toast. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, the roast potato peasantry, the everyday folks, that's us, Annie. While I identify as more of a turnip, I will, for the sake of this questionable exploration of the Reformation, concede to being a potato. Well, with that attitude, you're going to be a boiled new potato rather than a golden roast potato, Annie. (laughs) 